0: This is Hell.
1: Greetings, listeners. This is board operator Dan Hill. Our beloved host Chuck is still recuperating. He's laid up after a pretty major surgery to fix his unruly guts. He's sorely missed, but is on the mend and will be back just as soon as possible. If you like, you can send him your positive vibrations via email at chuck at this is um, or via Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio. In the meantime, we're in the studio once again. The board operators are playing some of our favorite interviews from the This Is Hell vaults. I've chosen for today, on this soggy Wednesday morning, an interview with Gary Brecher, a.k.a. John Dolan, a.k.a. The War Nerd. And if we get time, we might get to a 2010 interview with his Radio War Nerd co-host, Mark Ames. We'll be getting to that presently, but first, I should mention that this week's question from hell is, what you got going on inside you? What you got going on inside you? As always, you can give your answers to the question from hell at facebook.com, this is hell radio. At the end of the show, the very best answer will be awarded with some this is hell merchandise. Stay tuned, and I'll be reading some of your recent answers to the question from hell after that interview with Gary Brecher. This week's Hangover Cure is John Martin's record Solid Air, which we heard a little bit of before the stream. So jam that out if you're feeling under the weather. It's a pretty good record. I've got a Dusty Dollar copy of it. Um, Chuck didn't sound too sold on Alex's description. He called it New Age or Soft Rock, but it's good. Give it a chance. As I said before, the board operators are playing interviews from the past two decades that they want to hear. And for today, I've chosen a 2012 interview with Gary Brecher, aka John Dolan, aka The War Nerd. I've been a fan of John for a long time. Uh, His his novel, Pleasant Hell, was pretty formative for me. Uh, I started following John when he was writing for The Exiled Online, and he would write in this really funny voice. Uh, A lot of time, he was writing about the death drives of young men. In a way that I think rings very true, and isn't really taken seriously as like a political force anywhere else. Uh, nowadays, you can see John twice a month with his partner Mark Ames on the podcast Radio Warnerd. They've lately been mixing coverage of Ukraine with a po- uh, with a series of Chechen war ser- with a series on the Chechen wars and a series about the American Civil War. Uh, now, uh, this interview from 2012 was interesting to me, not only because it was from a time where John was a little more mysterious using the Brecher pseudonym, but also because 2012 marked an important point in Syria. You had the Arab Spring uprisings in a number of countries the year before, but by 2012 Syria in particular had escalated to the point that the UN was calling it a civil war. Uh, But this was still before ISIS or Rojava were household names. It's an interesting inflection point. Uh, So let's go to that 2012 interview with Chuck And Gary Brecher.
0: On the line with us right now is the one and only Gary Brecher. Let me get out his bio here. Uh, Gary is the war nerd. A collection of Gary's columns posted at Exiled Online was made into a book in 2008 published by Soft Skull Press and appropriately entitled... The War Nerd. While Gary was serving uh, what he called a death sentence at a computer job in Fresno, spending half his time working, and he's been the War Nerd ever since. Although many mistakenly believe he is actually Roger Edvardson of the Norwegian rhythm and blues band Ahem. Of course, we all know that cannot be true because there is no such thing as Norwegian rhythm and blues. And if there is, we need to do everything we can to stamp it out immediately his most recent writing uh gary's includes the article cleanse thy neighbor syria just woke turkey up here's why that was a really bad idea which he posted at the not safe for work corp website which we have a direct link to if you go to our website this is hell.com good morning gary good morning it's always good to hear from you, Mr. Nerd. Your voice is sounding really amazing this morning. I'm glad to hear that you also changed your name officially to Warnerd.
2: Yeah, yeah, why not? You know, it's a better identity. It's an American right to change your name when you hit on something that actually works for once.
0: <laughs> exactly. I'm still finding one, of, uh, looking for one of those. If you can figure out uh, a, wor- a name for me, please. Center long you know i mentioned you on twitter and the good people at exiled online replied with a uh, temporary free link to an article you wrote for the site as i was saying before the not safe for work corp website which claims uh, that it is quote the future of journalism with jokes it's only 3 bucks a month and you can find out more by going to uh, n s f w corp dot com. That article, as I was saying, your most recent is entitled "Cleanse Thy Neighbor." Syria just woke up. Here's why that's a really bad idea. I've been blogging and tweeting that this is the begin- What's what we are seeing in the Middle East? What we are seeing with uh, Syria? Uh, their war uh, overlapping into Lebanon. Their war overlapping into Turkey. Turkey fighting with Syria. Turkey fighting in Iraq uh, I've been blogging and uh, you know and fighting the Kurds uh, and tweeting that this is the beginning of World War three and that this is being ignored by the US national network TV news despite the severity of the situation not only do we have the problem with the israeli-palestinian conflict the san- sanctions against Iran the war within Syria that is spilling over into Lebanon Turkey and even uh, getting close to Israel Turkey involved in fights the Kurds uh, then there's uh, you know the internal conflict in Iran or Iraq as well as the war in Afghanistan, it's spilling over into Pakistan. To what degree do you think that this may you are the warner you are the expert yeah. on this. To what degree do you think that this may be the beginning of a world war?
2: It's a really good question. And I have to say, as a war fan, I mean I I feel like a weather forecaster that's seen a giant front off the Pacific coast for about all my life, except it never quite hits land, so I don't know, I mean, World War III oh sure, that's the dream but, you know uh, there's something going on that's a little weird Uh, there's there's this massive restraint in most parts of the world that I it's one of the things about war that I don't claim to understand Um, how long has it been that we've had nukes and how long has it been since they've been used I, I keep going through the files trying to find any example of a weapon that doesn't get used for that long. I can't find any. And where's World War Three? I don't know. I mean, people have been dreaming about it for a long time, and I'm sort of half-joking when I say dreaming, but not totally. I mean, I, I admit I'm a war nerd. I uh, When I say dream, I mean dream, not nightmare. Um, a lot of this, what they call dystopian, is not so dystopian at all. It's what we sort of half-dream will happen. But it isn't happening. And And Turkey... Man, Turkey uh, is, is a tough place, and they could wipe out Syria in a second. They could wipe out the PKK, the Kurds, um, on their southeastern front. They could wipe out all those people. Uh, there are only a few places where conquest still works, like it was working in Central America for the, for the Tutsi. They went as far as they could because they were the best warriors around. But in most of the world, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, there's, there's this weird restraint.
0: Do you think that this is the closest to that we have got to World War III since the Bay of Pigs? Or, being a military historian, being a war nerd, do you is there some other point in time where you see it was a lot closer?
2: Yeah, well, Bay of Pigs would, would Bay of Pigs the the missile crisis that that was amazingly close, and I think most people knew it at the time. Uh,
0: yeah, it was kind of conflating I think when you look those back, two the things. The Soviet there's... Union
2: was such a conservative power. I mean, they went out without a bang. That's incredible. A military organization that size that just sat there and let the tanks rust. I, I don't know too many examples of that either. So I don't know how close we were. I think looking back, America was the crazy one in that face down
0: yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, in the kind of reporting that we have seen, because it, we just went through the uh, anniversary of the Bay of Pigs, the 50th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs, what I was noticing in every report that I saw on the network news, ABC, NBC, CBS, even when I was watch- I saw some coverage on CNN and Fox and MSNBC and CNBC, I never saw anyone talk about what led to... Uh, the missile crisis, and that is that the United States had put missiles in Turkey.
2: The yeah, so- we're yeah we're back in Turkey. American missiles in Turkey. Yeah, that that could hit anywhere in Russia. Uh, that well, anywhere populated, anywhere worth hitting. Yeah, no, there, that's always been you know the the hometown news. It's it's like you know you read the Oakland Tribune when I was a kid, and you're going to get the Raiders are great. The Raiders are great. I pretty much get that in the politics, too.
0: So, uh, yeah, because for those people who don't know, the uh, United States had missiles in Turkey that aimed at the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union's reaction was to put turkeys in Cuba, or turkeys in Cuba, put missiles in Cuba in order to uh, have a base just like the United States had in Turkey, aiming missiles at the Soviet Union. And eventually yeah. the agreement was that uh, the United States would take their missiles out of Turkey if the uh, Soviet Union quit putting the missiles in Cuba, which actually happened a few months after the fact. But that seems to be completely forgotten in the news. So that's just hometown reporting, is that that's what you're saying? saying?
2: Well, yeah, yeah. I think uh, when, uh, the only time, you know, it's funny, I've noticed that when I do war I mean, uh, people react very differently to stories I write about some conflict far away, and or, or whether it's in the U.S. They get a lot twitchier when it's in the U.S. or when it involves Americans. Um, I don't really see it that way. I mean, I I don't know. I, I think it's a rough world, and I think we're part of a rough world. And when you look back at that long-term face-off between the U.S. and the USSR. It's usually something like that. Like, we do something kind of crazy and aggressive, and in a sort of sad, half-hearted way, they try to do their thing in, in perfect mirror response to what we did. And then we get furious, and they back off. Because, you know, I I think this comes back to war, too. The The Soviets... Had a war on their territory, which is never fun. I mean, war is fun the way the Brits used to do it and the way we like to do it. Right. Go to somebody else's country and have a war. So it's, you know, their sisters getting raped and their villages getting burnt. But the Russians had a war on their territory, and it's just coming out that the losses they admitted were less than they had. It was more like 30 million than 20 million.
0: Wow. Um, we are speaking with Gary Brecker. He is the war nerd. He's got a new article at the site, not safe for work corp you can find out uh, you can find that article by going to nsfwcorp.com it's the future of journalism with jokes that story again cleanse thy neighbor Syria just woke Turkey up here's why that was a really bad idea in that article you write this week Syria this a couple weeks ago when you posted this this week uh, Syria did the one thing the rest of the world won't forgive disturb the neighbors if you've ever lived in a really bad building you know the rules they can kill each other in there as long as they don't slam each other into the wall hard enough to knock down your stuff. I was listing all the cross-border as well as internal violence that uh, that are adjacent to the nations of Syria, Turkey, uh, you got uh, Lebanon, Israel, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, we're all experiencing all sorts of trouble right now. There's also the craziness in the Sinai, where, last thing I heard, Egypt was losing their fight with the uh, different criminal groups thriving in the no-man's land between Egypt and yeah, Israel. Yeah,
2: criminal, Bedouin, irregular, you know, anywhere you go, when... When you find an irregular or a gorilla, it'll be semi-criminal. They need money too, you know, and they they can't levy tax in the usual way, <laughs> so it all bleeds over into each other.
0: Do you think that that is the conflict right now that is being the most ignored? And I mean, obviously, everything that happens in Africa, if it's a conflict in Africa, it's ignored in the U.S. mainstream media. Right. Uh, right. But do you think that the Sinai is the mo- Is that the most important ignored conflict that's happening in that?
2: Might be. I, yeah, I guess because uh, people are a little more excited about what's happening in Egypt proper, and Sinai seems like a distant province. And, and because, you know, to be honest, the Israelis don't seem too worried about it. And usually we get worried when the Israelis get worried.
0: So, with all these different conflicts that are going on in the region, what makes the stuff going down between Syria and Turkey? so much different what makes what they are doing possibly in lebanon as well we have the beirut car bomb yesterday nobody has any idea yeah. of who actually set that off some people are saying it was the Assad regime some people are saying it was hezbollah some people are saying it's the flanges who knows who set that off uh, what makes syria what makes this so much more unique compared to all of the other conflicts that we have raging throughout the region
2: well you know turkey's uh Turkey's an amazing place Turkey's one of my favorite countries as a war nerd and uh, Turkey does not like people messing with its borders and there's a really good reason for that I mean until they bet on uh Imperial Germany and lost in nineteen eighteen Turkey wasn't Turkey it was the Ottoman Empire and it ruled all these Arabs I mean people think Muslims are Muslims and that's that's a lot of nonsense. Turks uh, saw what Woodrow Wilson and those eggheads were doing in europe and they said okay okay you're going to make europe into a set of ethnic enclaves well if we lose our empire then asia minor becomes turkey and everybody in turkey is a turk or else you know they'd already started doing that by cleansing the armenians in eastern turkey what's kurdistan now is uh well used to be armenian and the turks just enlisted the kurds who they despise for most reasons but you know were willing to use as uh regular pogrom executors, and uh, they, wanted it, they wanted all the minorities out. Western Turkey used to be Greek. Uh, 1.5 million people were sort of encouraged to leave at Bayonet Point. Turkey became uh, an all-Turkish enclave. Like I said in that article, you look at this part of Syria that used to be Turkey, every single place name on the Turkish side of the border is Turkish, and you can tell because Turkish names are weirder than anything in the world, at least if you're an English speaker. And uh, the idea that anybody is going to mess with these truncated borders that they settled for uh, kind of drives the Turks crazy. They don't like that.
0: Um, You know, uh, you write that when it comes to the uh, heightening of the tensions uh, between Turkey and Syria, quote, what happened was that the Syrian civil war, now in full swing, swamped over the border with mortar rounds landing inside Turkish territory in Hatay province or Hatay, I'm Mm -hmm. not too sure. Uh, Recep Erdogan, the uh, mainstream Islamist prime minister of Turkey, told a big, furious nationalist rally in Istanbul, quote, those who attempt to test Turkey's deterrence, its decisiveness, its capacity i uh, say here they are making a fatal mistake then you add he's not bluffing either some neighbors are just woofing turks aren't the turkish army could roll over uh, the assad's loyalists the alawite militias syria's uh, free syria army without even trying turkey could have occupied syria easily even when Assad had the full loyalty of his armed forces, taking the place now would be a genuine cakewalk, especially because the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, might welcome the Turks as fellow Sunnis. Now, that's pretty scary, and I got a few questions about that. But as I was reading that, all of a sudden I just remembered I was watching all these media reports at the beginning of the Syrian, uh, the, the, at the beginning of the really inflamed Syrian violence that was going on, at the at the beginning of the fighting with the rebels. And over and over, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN, they always said, Syria has one of the largest and strongest militaries in the Middle East. What would you give them as a rank? Aren't they like fourth or fifth on that pecking order?
2: Yeah, Syria's a joke militarily. It's always been a joke militarily. Syrians, I mean, you've got to understand uh, one thing that American news people don't usually want to understand. Not all armies are meant to defend the borders or uh, discourage foreigners from invading. A whole lot of armies, maybe most of the armies in the world, are meant to back up the cops and make sure that if anything really gets out of hand, people inside the borders can be massacred in an efficient way. And that's always what the Syrian army was about. They're very good at shelling Syrian civilians, and they killed maybe twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 in Hama in 1982 when there was a the Sunni revolt against the Alawites, because you've got to understand this is a sectarian war. It's nothing else. There's no nice guy on any side in Syria. So they're very good at that. They're very good at massacring their own people as... As a traditional Western army, fighting outside enemies, they're a joke. They they walked into the Golan. They literally, well, they drove. They drove into the Golan Heights during the uh, Yom Kippur War. (laughs) It was one of the funniest things in military history of recent years. They got so spooked by the fact that the Israelis weren't even there. They were, you know, they were all celebrating the holidays. But they said, oh, my God. Oh my God! It's a—it's an Israeli trap. Run! And the Syrians basically evacuated the Golan Heights when they had achieved strategic surprise. It's incredible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, all this t- all this uh, talk of uh, the Syrian army being incredibly strong is uh, very over exaggerated. But there are reports now that the Islamist groups within Syria are now coming together and may be aligning to fight the Assad government. But those same reports also say the Syrian groups that are making an alliance are not interested in any help, even from Syrian expats and refugees from outside the country. In your studying, of war as the war nerd we are speaking with gary brecker the war nude nerd what is the likelihood the syrian war will end at expanded outside intervention
2: oh i don't think it'll end uh I, I don't think it'll end and i don't think it'll be won either uh in any way i can see uh this is a this is a blood feud um they don't end uh These things can go on a long time. I mean, what we're seeing now is an extension of what happened in 1982. Uh, People got this idea that, you know, somehow it has to resolve into Gettysburg or Stalingrad. It doesn't do that. Um, These people... It's basically Sunni versus Alawite with a bunch of other minorities standing by scared because they know either one of those groups is not exactly their friend. So uh, both those people... The Alawites, who are basically Shia, and the the Sunni who live in eastern Syria, in the desert areas. Um, They've lost brothers. They've lost cousins. They've sat around in the living room and told each other stories about what the other side did to cousin so-and-so. That doesn't stop. That's never going to stop.
0: So do you think that this means it will lead to the breakup of Syria?
2: I don't know. I mean, uh, it depends on who... Outside Syria wants it most. I mean, there, there are two levels going on here. One is, inside Syria, there's there's a blood feud that will not stop. Outside Syria, there's the struggle between Iran and Hezbollah on the Shia side, and Israel, the U.S., and Saudi Arabia on the Sunni side. Uh, and I don't know how much any of those powers want it at the moment. Um Maybe they'll be content to control some of the players in Syria with the division going roughly down that blood feud line between Shia and Sunni. Uh, I don't. It's a very cautious age we're living in militarily, amazingly cautious. That's what hits me over and over again. Maybe we'll just uh, settle down to let the feud cool for a while until somebody else has a...
0: Is this then a, pro- a proxy war? Is that what's going on right now?
2: I think, you know, it's... It's sincere at that blood feud level, like they did. You know, they cut my cousin's eyes out before they killed him. I'm going to kill them all, even if I die trying. At that level, it's sincere, totally sincere. And in that way, it's very different from what was going on in Libya. There, there was no real tribe or religious group backing Gaddafi. But there, uh, uh, the Alawites are real. They're a, a Shia people from the coastal mountains. And you got to think of Syria as sort of divided between the coastal mountains and the inland desert. The the Sunni are, they look to the south, they look to the Sunni countries of the Arabian Peninsula for their, you know, sort of cultural inspiration, and along the coast, everybody's been through the coast, and you get some very weird religions, the Druze, the Alawite, who are a strange kind of Shia, many Christians, Uh, and there's a real cultural gap there, sort of a tribal gap. It's always going to go on, but uh, then there's the way people manipulate these players when you got an ethnic civil war going on you can you can if you're a big power you can play it really nastily all kinds of ways
0: Uh, You also write about the area that is being uh, shelled by the Syrians, the area that has led to the uh, rocket responses, the military responses by the Turkish government. That area is called Hatay province. I don't know if I'm getting the right pronunciation. H-A-T-A-Y province. Yeah, that
2: sounds right to me. (laughs) I I don't speak Turkish either, (laughs) and I think it's a Turkish name. They impose Turkish names, so... Sounds right
0: to me. Right, and you write that uh, this province was part of Syria until 1940. This was all Syrian territory with an Arabic-speaking majority until Turkey grabbed it. By the time Turkey got around to annexing Hatay, it had uh, it had had almost 20 years' experience in ethnic cleansing. In fact, so um, to what, I mean, we haven't heard any of that discussion within the media whatsoever. That this is kind of a contentious. Nope area. How does that affect the way in which we should be viewing this cross-border firing of mortars and rockets uh, between Syria and Turkey?
2: Well, Turkey cleansed what used to be the Sanjak of Alexandretta, you know, nice Italian name. It was a French province, coastal province. The French ran Syria and ran it real badly. They gave that province to Turkey basically as a bribe to keep Turkey from joining the Germans in World War II, the way they had in World War One. It was that cynical, it was that simple. And the Turks accepted the bribe because, like I said, after losing their empire, they were damn well not going to give up any more land. So I think the most important thing is, uh, the Turks have a sort of Walter Subchak attitude about this now. No, what's mine is mine. Um, and Hatay is theirs, and if anybody did a serious attempt to try to take away one inch of Turkish territory, all hell would break
0: loose. Listen, my button wasn't on. Uh, to what extent uh, is this, you know, because this the two things that I always hear too much, one thing I hear too much is um, all of this is the United States' fault. The whole thing, whatever war it is, it doesn't matter. Yeah. This is because of the CIA manipulating things. Yeah, the, the CIA
2: ground. controls the weather, all that stuff.
0: Right, yeah. and then on the other hand, Uh, no, this war, for instance, the uh, Sunni and the Shia sectarian fighting that happened in Iraq, this has been going on for millennia, and this will never stop. So to what extent do we overblame either uh, Western influence or these internal sectarian struggles?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, both those things are real. America does mess with people. Shia Sunni, that's a real fight, but we forget how much things waffle around in history. I mean, nobody remembers now, nobody remembers that the Muslim world was modernizing in like 1950, and the big thing was to be a socialist, or a pan-Arab nationalist, or a pan-Arab socialist. You know, when, when something dies out, the way the whole socialist thing died out when the Soviet Union went away, it's as if nobody remembers it anymore, and nobody remembers that it ever existed. There have been all kinds of currents across the Middle East. And like, you know, in in your grandpa's time, there was all all these Arab intellectual women who were never going to wear the veil, and now their granddaughters wear the veil all the time, and it it breaks their heart, actually. (laughs) There have been all kinds of currents that we just forget. It's not that the currents we remember are fake. It's just we forget so many others.
0: So is the new Middle East, is it going to be this kind of ethnically cleansed Middle East, where we have Alawites here, we have Sunni here, we have Shia. Is that what we are leading to now, a completely segregated uh, kind of Middle East that's based on racism?
2: Well, um, maybe a little more than usual, but never never completely. I mean, Middle East is not one of those neighborhoods that can be gentrified completely. Uh, people expected, for example, that the Egyptian cops were all going to flee uh, and, and there have been a few cases of... I, w- I was checking for that, because, you know, it, it went, after that movie came out, The Innocence of Muslims made by an Egyptian comp, you expected there'd be pogroms against Egyptian Christians, but the only one I heard about was in uh, Rafa, and Rafa is not really Egypt proper, it's right next to the Gaza Strip, and things are uh, a little inflamed around there. So uh, I'd say be slow pogroms against minorities in some places. Uh, but, you know, people who leave also come back. Uh, they they hunker down. Some cousin or other stays. These are big families. And uh, the cousin who stays says after a while, no, you can come back, and they do. Um, settlement patterns are, are pretty stubborn things.
0: We are speaking with Gary Brecker, the war nerd. Uh, Gary, just a couple more questions for you. Um, to what extent is what we are seeing happening in Syria today still the legacy of Western colonialism? How much is this happen how much of this is happening because of the four hundred years of colonialism that you know the world experienced from the west
2: Well um, depends on which colonialism you mean I mean uh, Syria was an Ottoman colony. Uh, until the 20th century, and basically it might have stayed an Ottoman colony. That is a Turkish Muslim Sunni colony, even longer, except the uh, the Ottomans bet wrong on World War One, went with the Germans and lost, and then the French took it. So it's not just Western colonialism. Uh, Syria has always been something that uh, other powers played with, and I'm talking like 3,000 years ago. The Egyptians who weren't all that warlike and basically considered that the world ended with the Nile. Still, they they mess with the Syrians now and then. There are these caricatures of Syrians in the old Egyptian murals, you know, where Syrians are these big, heavy-legged, bearded hicks, basically. So people have been messing with Syria for a long, long time.
0: Um. Let's see. Oh, uh, I'm trying to find my last couple of questions. Oh, okay. Here you go. Uh, I remember reading about uh, how there are so many more wars. There were so many more wars in the 20th century than any other time. But being that there were no nation states, I imagine wars were yeah. hard to define, and that there still may.
2: Oh yeah, that is a lie that makes me really angry. Oh, okay. Wars. <laughs> that is so much of a lie. Oh man. I... Uh, there, there have been so many. war was normal until really recently. I mean, the the, the real like anomaly now is the non-wars, um, and the way we don't use every weapon we have because every civilization I know of used everything it had most of the time. I, I don't know what they mean by wars. See, this is the Gettysburg slash Stalingrad thing. Right? Nobody thinks it's a war until you've got Gettysburg or Stalingrad going on. That's not what war is like. That was a weird little thing that happened for a few centuries in Europe. Most wars are, you know, that village next door. Uh, we don't like them. They look funny. They sleep too late in the morning. I think we could take their cattle. <laughs> that's that's war. <laughs>
0: We've been speaking with Gary Brecker. Gary is the war nerd. You got to check out his writing at nsfw.com. Uh, Again, that's not safe for Work Corp uh, website. We have a direct link to it at our website dot com gary is the war nerd he's author of the war nerd a twice monthly column discussing current wars and other military conflicts published in the exile we have a direct link to the exile at their site and his book the war nerd was published in 2008 by soft skull press you can still find that online as well it's always a great pleasure to hear from uh gary brecker the war nerd i got a question from hell for you as we always do for our Guess, which is the question that we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate the response. I have two for you. The first one is we uh, are going to hear more and more about uh, foreign policy in the presidential debate and what we can do to have a better foreign policy, more national security, make the United States more secure. Um, given that we are ex- what we are experiencing right now from all of the things around the world— are is kind of a blowback from 400 years of colonialism whether it's from the west whether it's from the turks whatever the situation is can we have an effective can the united states have an effective foreign policy without inventing the time machine
2: (laughs) or even then uh (laughs) well you know effective for what uh i i got real discouraged in 2003 because you know uh Back then, I was a hardcore American nationalist, and I thought, this Iraq invasion, this isn't good for America. But, like, who's America? It was good for Cheney, it was good for Bush, was right. good for all their friends in the oil industry. Um, it was good for Saudi Arabia, it was good for Israel, it was good for everything they care about. It, you know, there's a lot of Americas. and The one I remember where my parents never had anything much, uh, and they were smart people, they were good people, they, they had nothing. And uh, I don't think there's ever going to be an American policy that's very good for them but there'll be one that's good for the people that Janey uh, likes.
0: Okay, one last question from hell for you, Gary Brecker, the war nerd. Are you John Galt?
2: <laughs> no, no. John Galt is one of those achievers. <laughs> uh, I'm one of those underachievers. <laughs>
0: All right. It's great to hear from you. As always, Gary Brecker, the one and only. And, you know, it really bugs me when people say you don't exist. How could you not exist when I can hear your voice on the phone?
2: Yeah, here I am, in like some sort of existential way, if I'm using that word right.
0: <laughs> exactly. I'll have to go look that up later. Thanks, Gary. All it's right. always great to hear from you. Always great to hear from the war nerd. Everybody should go to our site. Click on the links for Gary. A uh, pleasure to hear from you. Say hello to Mark Ames and all the folks over at Exile.
2: All right. Thanks very much.
0: All right. Take care, sir. Nice. talking to you. Bye.
1: All right. That was Chuck interviewing Gary Brecher, a.k.a. John Dolan, a.k.a. the war nerd, in 2012. Super interesting interview. I didn't think that John was going to say that he longed for World War III. Uh, I guess he was having one of those days. That interview was pretty short, so I think we have time to keep our Radio War Nerd theme going and play an old interview with co-host Mark Ames. Mark was the editor of the Exile newspaper in Moscow, a paper which chronicled the fallout of free market policies in post-Soviet Russia, among other things. In this interview from 2010, Mark talks about his article, Bloodsucking Freaks, where he talks about the creepy rich. So let's give that a spin.
0: On the line with us right now is uh, Mark Ames He's a writer for ExiledOnline.com The author of 2005's Going Postal Rage, Murder, and Rebellion From Reagan's Workplaces To Clinton's Columbine and Beyond That was published by Soft Skull Press We have a direct link to the publisher's webpage Where you can purchase the book at our website Mark's recent articles include Our Obama and Geithner The uh, Twins from Hell And Bloodsucking Freaks The Right-Wing Billionaires At Cerberus Capital Literally Suck Blood from the poor. Uh, Welcome to the show. Uh, Great to have you back on, Mark.
3: Uh, Thanks for having me on. Uh, Uh, By the way, nitrous, bad stuff, man. Gives you a bad headache. It does, but you know what? You go back
0: and forth between that and pure oxygen. Not that I know. (laughs) I'm just suggesting that this could be a way in which... You can get around that. Uh, so uh, in your article, uh, Blood Sucking Freaks, and I want to read, a, it, this is a little bit long here, but I want to read this paragraph because uh, you get right to the point here, and I, I, people got to know what we're, exactly what we're talking about. You you start off by writing, it turns out that uh, these Wall Street vampire billionaires really exist, literally, like all vampires, they live in remote castles, feed themselves by luring poor, desperate humans into their dens, uh, lot, uh, hooking them into blood-pumping machines and sucking out their plasma for mind-boggling profits. Now, people would think, oh, that's just some crazy metaphor. You're saying this is what is literally happening. So before I go into this really long paragraph, uh, why don't you tell folks what's going on? How is it that Wall Street is actually sucking blood out of human beings and profiting from it?
3: Yeah, Cerberus Capital—they're—they're they're a big and notoriously ruthless uh, fund uh, on Wall Street, and uh, <clears throat> you know, should be known. Our, our former Treasury Secretary Jack Snow um, is the chairman, and the international chairman is former Vice President Dan Quayle. So, this, you know, these are heavy hitters in this uh, fund. And this particular investment is actually one of the most successful investments um, you know over the last couple of years that they made. They invested. Into what was then a small um, sort of, sorry about this sort of medical company called Telecris, and what they do is they, um, you know, literally separate. They they hook people up. They need live humans, live feeding cows. Hook them up to these plasma sucking machines. The blood is sucked out of their arms and spun around in a kind of cold filter process, and then the kind of debased blood without plasma is pumped back into the human. And the plasma is kept for, um, for sale, and they turn around and sell this stuff. I mean, the, the, the value of the plasma can reach as high as, like, twice the price of gold in weight. Um, Cerebras, uh, the thing about cerebrus too, is they put in, they invested about $81 million into this company a few years ago. And last October, they made almost a billion dollars off of one of the only successful IPOs uh, on Wall Street last year. And in total, they made something like $1.8 billion off their investment in just four years. So you can see that, <clears throat> you know, these guys would stop at nothing. Now, Cerberus got into the, new, into the news really because they bought Chrysler a couple of years ago and they bought uh, GMAC, and both companies, of course, wound up having to get uh, bailed out by the taxpayers to the tune of uh, tens of billions of dollars by these, you know, Republican bigwigs who have been preaching free market austerity and responsibility to the rest of us all these years. So these guys, you know, bought Chrysler. They openly said, we're not buying it to, uh, to become heroes or to even turn this thing around or make it work. We're buying it to make a profit. It didn't work. And then they found another way to make a profit. They went to, uh, you know, went to Washington and used Jack Snow and Dan Quayle to, um, basically pimp the white house and pimp uh, congress for gigantic bailouts and they got them so either way they won when they suck our blood out they win when they uh, buy out a giant you know uh company that that a huge part of the economy depends on fired thousands of people and still can't make their money then they come to the taxpayers and suck their money out anyway
0: now I, I don't know if you've ever done this mark but i've actually given plasma have you ever done this
3: I actually haven't, no. <clears throat> and after, after I sort of read about this story, I would never do it. I mean, it's an hour-long process, as I understand, right? And the blood that they pump back in, the, the plasma-free blood that they pump back in, is supposed to be rather cold.
0: Uh, it's horrifyingly cold. Yeah. It, it makes it feel like you, have, you are now experiencing what it would feel like if you were conscious and dead. At the same time. it's Which uh, is
3: what a vampire's victim is, right? Exactly,
0: exactly. And uh, uh, the places where you get this done, I've actually even done... This is the worst part of it. I've actually done this in Detroit. Uh, This is not uh, recently. This is what I was on. I was actually in a far worse and more broke state than I am right now at one point in my life. And I've actually done this in Detroit uh, on, I believe, I know it was on Cass, and I'm pretty sure it was in the Cass Corridor, where you went up to a bulletproof window and stuck your arm through a bulletproof window. And had it taken out, and then there was a liquor store right next door, so you could buy like a forty immediately after, and you can get real drunk real fast <laughs> once you just got rid of some plasma
3: and some nitrous too. Yeah, and for use. nitrous, exactly.
0: Yeah. And I went with this one guy one time who uh, had never done it before and was a much a bigger freak than me. And the doctor said, "Don't stand up fast because if you do, you'll get lightheaded." And he was like, "Great!" And he stood up fast and passed out. <laughs> thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So I've seen this. This is a, it's a it is a really creepy situation. But the the creepiest part about this that I didn't know until I read your piece is the United States is the only country in which you can sell uh, plasma for profit. Now, One of the
3: only ones. There, there are very, very few countries in the world, including Mexico, even outlaws it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So so,
0: what, do you, what does that say to you about American capitalism? What does that say to you about American culture? What does that say to you about us when we're one of the very few countries, at least, that actually uh, will purchase plasma from people?
3: You know, the thing, if, if this story was pitched as a fictional story two years ago, it would have been rejected as not believable. And what it says is that there, there's actually, these guys have no limit. Um, there is it, it, this country is basically run by predators and freaks and, um, and you know and, and monsters and, uh, and and they really need to be held in check and, and I can understand that you need some of their energy you know for some business and some whatever the hell you need it for but, but you need them chained you know to the floor with a thousand chains and They've been arguing all along. If you unchain us and un- unchain the, you know, uh, the, the markets, that everything is going to work out great for everybody. And um, and don't listen to the pinheads who are saying, you know, uh, that if you unchain us and free up the markets, that it's that there's going to be some kind of vampiric capitalism. Well, it's true. All the horror stories that they've told us about capitalism turned out to be true. It it needs to be. You know, it needs to have its legs sawed off and you know, bashed into a pulp like, like the misery woman did to James Caan because otherwise it, it devours us. And, and ultimately, it devours even the people who um, you know, supposedly benefit from it. It's really bizarre, it's a bizarre system.
0: And it's not just, uh, you know, getting away from uh, the creepiness of this, of being uh, blood sucking vultures. Uh, it also says something about what has happened with industry consolidation as well. You write how a lawsuit filed by the Federal Trade Commission accused Cerberus Plasma Holdings of operating as an oligopoly that is, only a few companies completely run the entire market. And you said that because of that, they were able to restrict the flow, if you will, of plasma into the market. Market, which uh, last summer actually raised the price of uh, intravenous immunoglobulin uh, to twice the price of gold. Uh, so the story is about not just uh, Wall Street's ruthlessness, but to me also about, you know, healthcare care costs. Uh, it's also about Wall Street. It's also about, you know, numerous different things. But in your opinion, to what extent does one, Wall Street's blood sucking, drive the other, spiraling health care costs? Um, well,
3: I mean, completely, because, uh, you know... The- the idea is supposed to be that if, uh, that a free market run um, healthcare system is supposed to provide the best prices, the, the most innovative products, and so on. And what we see actually is, I mean, a lot of great products in healthcare have been produced, probably most of them for that matter, <clears throat> have been produced by government-backed scientists or in universities and so on. What they do is the exact opposite. They restrict. They, they are all about profits. And the way that they drive their profits up is by colluding, by restricting supply, and by manipulating the price. And so, you know, the, the, these guys, the, the plasma treatments are used for people in pretty serious conditions, hemoph- hemophiliacs and uh, serious burn victims or people with uh, autoimmune deficiencies. And um, it's, it's pretty clear that, that, uh, that these healthcare companies aren't really interested in saving these people. They don't really care. All that matters is profit. So they're willing to drive the price up so high that actually the health insurance companies are dropping people who need these drugs. And, and even there, you get into the, into the really grotesque bizarreness of the capitalist system when you have, you know, uh, basically you have healthcare <clears throat> industry and health insurance industry, both these two banged, you know, beasts fighting over uh, whatever, whatever meat they can strip off of some hemophiliac, I mean, basically how much money they can strip off of them. Um, it's, it's pretty awful. And, and sadly, most people still don't quite get it because for the last 30 years, um, we've just been bombarded with so much propaganda about how great the free market system works. It's going to take, I think, quite a while for it to really sink in you know, to to a large portion of the population. I mean, people know that they've been getting screwed and their their lives are getting worse and worse. But I have a feeling it's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot more of these articles constantly, you know, coming out and, and educating people to make them sort of link the two up.
0: No, when I was uh, living in Michigan and I was giving plasma, plasma centers uh, were really easy to find. I could tell you where uh, quite a few were in the uh, Lansing area, that's the capital of Michigan. And I could tell you, you would see them all the time when you would be driving around Detroit. In any impoverished area, in any really, I would imagine, uh, I didn't spend much time in Flint, but I would imagine in Flint, they're very easy to find. You point out how now they're uh, Cerberus and uh, other of these plasma companies are opening up Tons and tons of plasma centers right across the border from Mexico, trying to get impoverished Mexicans to come over, even putting them on buses on the other side to bring them to plasma centers. Um, So just to play devil's advocate again, uh, isn't this then uh, in, you know, couldn't Cerberus say, hey, look, we're providing a, uh, an important lifeline uh, I keep using all these puns that have to do with blood uh, aren't we providing an important lifeline to the most impoverished people uh, they have a, a, a sustainable resource of plasma and we're just giving them uh, money that they desperately need in order to pay their families couldn't they somehow say that this is out of goodwill
3: first of all they're, they're paying them as little as possible for um, for the plasma that's in their body uh, so it's definitely not for any good, as, uh, you know, as Stephen Feinberg, the, the head of uh, Cerberus, you know, has even admitted many times in notes and so on is the point of his fund. I mean, Cerberus, let's go back. Cerberus refers to the mythical three-headed dog uh, from Greek legend that, that guards the gates of hell and makes sure that everybody who's in hell can't get out. And it wasn't chosen at random. They they in, intentionally chose that name. So Cerberus is not providing. I mean, these people need money. There's no doubt about it. But if, for example, um, the government were to be running this program, uh, I would imagine that uh, at least they'd have to be accountable to something else besides just profit. I would imagine that they'd have to pay more. If they even could do this, that they'd have to pay more um, to the donors, and that they'd make it more accessible and charge less, and wouldn't manipulate and drive the price out of reach of people who are suffering and need this to survive.
0: Uh, so you write about how uh, profiting from ruined American lives is nothing new to Cerberus. Cerberus is the same shady fund that bought Chrysler and GMAC, as you were talking about earlier, in 2007, drove them into the ground, blamed everything on unions, after even after firing 30,000 Chrysler employees, dumped the companies onto American taxpayers, but only after living, uh, lining up tens of billions in taxpayer-funded bailout funds, Cerberus is led by some of the most aggressive free market Republicans of our time, chairman of which, as you were pointing out, Treasury Secretary John Snow, Treasury Secretary under uh, the past President Bush, who oversaw the destruction of Americans' economy while serving under Bush from 2003 to 2006, bragging during his tenure, we are the envy of the world. And you point out, like you were saying, Dan Quayle's relationship with Cerberus as well. Uh, Is Cerberus then, with its anti-labor stance, its role in undercutting American manufacturing, its Capitol Hill connections, and therefore, its bailouts. Is Cerberus then, is, is it the epitome of the, uh, this ugliness, a, a company that possesses many of the ugly characteristics that have been on display within American capitalism over the last 30 years? Is, it, is, it like, is this the example of how bad it can be? Or do you think maybe Goldman Sachs or maybe some other company is a worse example?
3: Uh, they're all uh, perfect examples. Uh, each one of them has several really horrible stories. Um, to tell, I think together they, you know, they, they create this sort of book of the dead <clears throat> uh, together. I, I, I think they're just one of them. And Jack Snow is actually a fairly interesting example. Just to take one person, the, 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 uh, the former Treasury Secretary under Bush and the chairman of Cerberus. He, um, you know, he goes back uh, to the Ford administration, Ford-Nixon administration. He was instrumental in the deregulation of the trucking industry in the uh, early mid-70s. Um, and that was that was sort of the first major deregulation um, uh, of a transport industry. Or really, when, when the deregulation craze started, um, it, w- it was at that time, and Snow oversaw it. And the trucking industry has suffered, you know, horribly ever since. Or I take that back. Not the not necessarily the CEOs or some of the shareholders who timed their investments right, but workers in the trucking industry have seen their you know, their wages, their salaries, their, their take home plummet ever since. Um, and in fact, just recently in the trucking industry, I don't know if you've heard about this. There was one uh, one company went out of business, fired a whole bunch of people, but it fired them while uh, fired a bunch of truckers while they were on the road. And they only found out when they went to the gas station um, to, to fill up their trucks and found out the cards didn't work. And we're told to leave the trucks in the gas stations and, and uh, you know, basically find a bus to get back home and then send the bus ticket bill to this company. Um, in fact, there are lawsuits going on all over the country. This is the state of the trucking industry eventually became the state of pretty much all the American economy, um, people's lives. And in fact, the businesses, they don't matter anymore. All that really matters are a few corrupt, sleazy insiders making so much money for themselves, so much money they wouldn't even know what to do with it. It just becomes a kind of competition or, an, or a cocktail party, you know, game or tournament. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and, and, and just leaving behind a trail of destruction. And, and they don't really have to care about it much because people have been fed so much and Rand and Milton Friedman garbage these last couple decades that people all think, well, you know, this is how it has to be. This is right. A realistic, this is, this is reality. You know, they, they don't realize that actually the very worst people um, sort of colluded to create both the conditions and, and the sort of ideology that allowed them to, to run amok all over this country.
0: Uh, you write uh, you, you talk about how uh, Cerberus Well you know what I'm going to save that question Because that's such a good question I'm going to save that For my last question mm-hmm. For you from the question from hell When we do that a little bit later uh, So you're uh, bashing uh, John Snow Former Treasury Secretary John Snow In this article uh, You uh, posted an article Yesterday Entitled "Our Obama and Geithner The twins from hell uh, I would assume That you were no big fan Of Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson either So Snow Paulson uh, Geithner None of these guys are any good at uh, Treasury Secretary, in your opinion. You've been very critical of them. Uh, Why do we get uh, people who you – why do we get so many bad Treasury Secretaries?
3: Um, Again, you know, that's – I mean, that's a good question. Uh, The left, unfortunately, you know, got castrated. Uh, Timing was bad. Whatever the the hell happened uh, at the end of the 70s or under Carter – the left was castrated, and and the right had all the energy. And the right, in order to get that energy, I mean, if you kind of go back and see how they got to power and stayed in power, it was a, it was basically a fifty-year process <laughs> ever since the New Deal started to try to get back into power and and reimpose their rule. And what they wound up doing over the fifty years through kind of process of Darwinianism was was higher and fun, crazier and crazier more and more radical people so that eventually you had, you know, people like Grover Norquist and Irving Kristol and, and the neocons and, uh, you know, Arthur Laffer, or Win- Jude Wyneske, all, all these absolute crackpots who, um, who were able to generate some excitement. And finally, the party kind of had to follow all, the, all those crazy ideas that helped them, I don't know, appeal to the lowest common denominator in this country. So if you ask me, it really it, it goes back to uh, it goes back to this sort of ideological war um, that that the right waged against the left ever since the New Deal, and that the right eventually won and the left sort of collapsed and never came back. I mean, this was this is something that really surprised me um, when 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 the financial collapse first happened in September and October. I mean, in a big way, in September October of uh, 2008. All sorts of people were talking about how, um, when Obama comes to power, you know, the New Deal is going to return. We're going to undo all the all the horrible stuff of the last 30 years. Um, we're going to bring back the New Deal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everybody just kind of sat back and waited for it to happen. And the right, and these people, these Cerberus people, the the, the you know, Goldman Sachs, Kimcos, all these people, they they really were on the ropes. They were scared. They were defunded basically for a period of time and what they saw was the left actually you know if you ask me at least the the left the part of the left that maybe is sort of closer to power um they didn't really have a lot of energy and they certainly didn't have sort of teeth and fangs and claws needed to to fight this battle with these kind of monsters and so that vacuum kind of stayed open. I mean, these guys were scared. They pretty much thought it was over for them and the new deal was going to happen. But for example, you didn't really hear much in early 2009 when this vacuum was still there and anything could have happened. You didn't hear a big outcry for nationalizing the banks. You didn't hear a big outcry for socialism. You know, you're a lot against socialism, but even, even leftists couldn't really use, they, 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 they euphemistically say the S word or they qualify it a hundred times over, you know, before raising it. And if that's the case, uh, you you just can't win in an ideological battle with these people on the right um, if if you're afraid to even use a word like socialism. So that was it. And when the right got all of its money through the bailout and all the same people who screwed everything up got their money, suddenly they were more funded than ever before. And anybody who might oppose them had less money than ever before. And that's it. We lost.
0: That's how I look at it. Uh, I just want to read a little bit of uh, your article here about Tim Geithner. Uh, You point out that, quote, the most recent hope-crushing revelation about Secretary of the Treasury's Tim Geithner, uh, email showing that the New York Fed under Geithner's watch uh, forced AIG to lie to the public in order to cover up tens of billions of taxpayer dollars that were being funneled through AIG and out the back door to top financial institutions like Goldman Sachs proves once and for all that Geithner is the worst choice imaginable for the job. He's the epitome of the sort of incompetence, sleaze, and corruption that Bush specialized in. As far as President Obama picked, uh, as far as why President Obama picked Geithner, you write how so far the most convincing rational explanation you've read comes from a past guest on our show, Bill Black, who you describe as the former SNL scandal investigator hero who understands public-private corruption uh, in this country like few others. Uh, Professor Black, like a true prosecutor, puts Geithner's uh, rise to the head the treasury in simple crime world terms. He's there to cover up his own heist. All across the board, as uh, Black has pointed out, the same perps who caused the collapse of the financial system and the looting of all those trillions are all in positions of power to cover up their crimes and keep the details out of the public eye. And uh, to what degree, though? Do you think they're having success? Because after all, there's now this, you know, new federal financial crisis inquiry commission that's supposedly going to uh, get to the bottom of the scandal. So isn't this going to stop Geithner and all of his buddies from any cover up?
3: Uh, you know, Geithner, I I, I I, would not be all that worried if I were Geithner at this point. Um, I would have been worried um, in March of of last year when when you know the country first found out about those uh, AIG bonuses and you know people were pulling out their pitchforks i mean it was the one time when 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 the outrage really just exploded in the public and i think it scared the hell out of the establishment including the democrats the liberals the obama administration that kind of thing scared them they put a lid on it really quickly and ever since then it's you know it's been all about what, what I wrote about in the article, what, what Geithner does best and what Obama has done best since they were students, which is calm down, heated passions, uh, you know, preserve the status quo, um, make both sides feel good, make them feel uh, you know, loved and trusted and so on. Is change and, and possible
0: secure. when you're having those kind of concessions, though, when you're that kind no. of concessionary personality?
3: No, that, that's the whole point, and I think that's why the establishment was was comfortable with Obama um, I mean he he he's, he's like a different label uh, I mean to put it crudely uh, because because of his black skin but in and so you know it, it makes you think you're getting a different product but in fact he is there you know in their eyes he's there to preserve the status quo he's there because he's not radical somebody radical or somebody with um, uh, who felt entitled maybe like an FDR or perhaps Kennedy um, somebody who felt a bit more sense of entitlement might be a bit more dangerous um, to all the people who stole all this money because you can't really control them quite as easily um, and they might do something for their own vanity purposes or their you know or because they think it's the right thing um, but I, I just don't think Obama especially being African-American he didn't rise to the top by being a radical. He rose up to the top by, um, you know, and, and it must be incredibly difficult to do that. He rose to the top partly, I would imagine, by making sure white people didn't flinch when they were around him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's the case. You know, I still think I don't want, I, I, I think everybody should remember that no matter how, um, how disappointed we all are, that it was much worse under Bush. And it could still be and probably will still be much worse under the next guy. And um, that's, you know, not a ringing endorsement uh, of Obama, but things can get really bad for a lot of people here and across the globe under somebody even worse than him. Yeah. yeah. You know. I mean,
0: yeah, it can get worse, but that is certainly, and obviously you make this point in your article, uh, that doesn't make the Obama administration above criticism either, though.
3: No, no. And in fact, you know, I've been studying, actually, for, for a new book I'm working on, I'm studying the, the rise of the right, and they certainly didn't shrink from um, expressing their disappointment yeah. with, uh, like, Ike. I mean, they, they thought Ike was a communist. Right. You know, and, and they liked Goldwater. They thought Nixon was a communist and a socialist and a whatever. They, 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 they couldn't stand Nixon. They couldn't stand Ford. They tried to push him right. Actually, Cheney and Rumsfeld pushed him hard right, you know, which Ford was just He he didn't get it quite. And they kept pushing that until they finally got it with Reagan. And, um, uh, you know, it's horrible, and we're all suffering from the consequences for it. But I think it's a lesson also for what I think progressives and people on the left thought we should look at the Democrat Party. I mean, yeah, Obama is much better um, than Bush, but, but we actually need somebody good. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think that's, that's a good way to put it we don't need hope and change we need something good uh, yeah. Mark I got an email uh, early this morning from a listener in England and he writes uh, this is Graham he writes if you get the chance you should ask Mark Ames what the story is with uh, the war nerd Gary Brecker who writes for uh, ExiledOnline.com like you do I mean what happened the war nerd retired once he heard that George Bush was leaving the building figured it was going to be all peace, love and harmony once.'" A Obama was in the house. And then he says, also, you should ask Ames if there's any truth to my suspicion that Dmitry Medvedev is Robbie Williams' long-lost sibling. The mutual resemblance is striking, not to mention the fact that they're both incredibly mediocre. All right, so we can skip that part of the question. But where is Gary Brecker? What's up with him?
3: Uh, He's uh, in an undisclosed location, uh, you know. uh, I mean, in a bunker in an undisclosed location, like Dick Cheney was not. He um...
0: so he's in your basement.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's in our basement, chained up, and he doesn't get out until he starts writing again. Um, no, he. You know, it 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 can be tough to keep it up. Um, I mean, I I keep in touch with Bretcher, and uh, and, um, you know, I think he'll be back again. But it's. I mean, it's tough. It's it's tough making money right now, and, uh, and, and you know, keeping a, uh, keeping a job, and keeping your apartment or duplex or whatever he has, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think he'll be back. This happens sometimes. I've, w- I've worked with a lot of writers over the years, um, and uh, I'm pretty sure he'll be back sometime soon. I get letters like this all the time, too. I mean, Bretcher Brett was always, you know, one of the most popular, if not the most popular writer we ever had at the Exile, and all. Going back to our
0: Russia years. Well, um, you and uh, Matt Taibbi as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary uh, has been on our show; he's a great guest, one of our mm-hmm. uh, producers on our show. Uh, Chris Bigosinski is a huge fan of Warner, and he said the Warnerd book was uh, fantastic. I have not, mm. I have not checked it out yet. So, uh, if if anybody wants to show their support for Gary Brecher, go out and uh, go buy his book, Warnerd. All right, one last question for you, Mark. We've been sure. speaking with Mark Ames. He is a writer for Exiled Online, author of 2005's Going Postal, Rage. Murder and rebellion from Reagan's workplaces to Clinton's Columbine and beyond. He's written a couple of articles uh, recently called Bloodsucking Freaks and Argumentation. Obama and Geithner, the twins from hell. With those kind of titles, we had to have them on. This is hell. Uh, so uh, Mark, we've got one last question for you. It's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. You write about how Cerberus is... Uh, thank God they're diversifying. Unfortunately, uh, they've diversified from the blood business into the guns and ammo business. You write, Luckily for uh, Cerberus, weapon sales are flying off the store shelves, thanks to all the paranoia about Obama socialism fed by all the bailout money. That Right-wing billionaires like Cerberus have looted. Uh, Sales have also been boosted by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In other words, more government handouts for the billionaires now that they own the guns and ammo business. It's all going so well that Cerberus is planning a huge IPO this year for Freedom Group, which should net them another massive payout. Freedom Group is their guns and ammo business. Now, We've asked uh, this question in the past to many of our guests. And to be honest, I just love to ask this question. You know, look, we all knew that when Bush got in office – The oil companies were going to do great. Uh, Had we done even the tiniest bit of research, we could have figured out that Vice President Cheney has this intense connection with Halliburton. Uh, We could have, uh, you know, maybe invested in that. After 9-11, we all knew we were going to go bomb the hell out of somebody, if not go to war with Afghanistan and likely Iraq. Uh, Yet, I bet like myself, you didn't go run off and invest in Exxon the day after George W. Bush was elected. You didn't run out and invest in Halliburton once you realized the Cheney connection and you didn't Still invest
3: in myself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. And you didn't invest in military contractors the week after 9-11 So do you think Cerberus's gun and ammo business, Freedomworks, is this a good investment? Should our listeners get in on this IPO because why not? It's inevitable that someone will make money off of this and why should it just be all the right wing conservative kooks who love uh, shooting and profiting off of human misery?
3: Uh, it's funny you you um, <clears throat> uh, made a little Freudian slip there, which I almost did several times writing. You you called it Freedom Works instead of Freedom Group. Oh, sorry, <laughs> and that's the Freedom Tea Works Party group. Into it. Yeah, you are exactly right. Um, uh, my answer to that would be um, uh, the guys who are making money off this are the uh, they make they they've made their money up till now, and they'll make their big money on the day of the IPO. And the rest of us, um, uh, you know, we, we're just we, we may make money, we may lose money, but all the money to be made and all the money to be, like, extracted out of that gun business, the the real money is going to be made up to and on the day of the IPO. That's what I think, you know, looking at all this. These guys, um, they, they, they're cheaters, you know. They're cheaters, they're fraudsters, they're crooks. And, uh, you know, simple guys like us, like, even if we wanted to be, you know, um, Leninist revolutionaries and try and earn money from, from Freedom Group uh, in order to fund the revolution, Like we probably wouldn't because these guys will be stealing money left and right out of the company the more um, regular investors and regular you know, mom-and-pop people buy into the company. That's how they operate. So I wouldn't buy anything that Cerberus offered me. I would maybe, if I want to make money, I would get an MBA from some top school and try and get a job at Cerberus. And go around sucking blood from people or selling them guns because that's the way to make money uh, in, in the economy we have now.
0: Well, Mark, I'd really appreciate that very optimistic uh, financial <laughs> tip to uh, wrap up our interview. Have a happy this. weekend. Thank you. So I know what your portfolio <laughs> looks like. <laughs> Mark, I really appreciate you being on the show. Happy New Year. It's great to have you back on. We haven't had you on in a couple of years. I really appreciate you being back. Your writing's always really entertaining. Uh you can find all of uh, Mark's writing at Exiled Online. Uh these articles also appeared at Alternet. I really pre- by the way, those uh pricks at Alternet, they don't pay you, do they?
3: Uh they you know, they do, but they, they don't pay um the way that like Ski Foundation and Allman Foundation <laughs> and these crazy right wing foundations paid you know that's uh, unfortunately you know, unfortunate, but uh, that's the way it is,
0: we're I in mean, the wrong. St- we're in the wrong, stupid business. I know, <laughs> I guess that sometimes. All right. <laughs> hey, All and right. by the way, one other thing: uh, give uh, if you even talk to him anymore. Give Tybee grief. Now he's like such a big deal that he doesn't want to come on our show because it's Saturday morning and he's got to stay in for his beauty sleep for TV. <laughs>
3: Got to get his, his nails filed, huh? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> right. I'll let him know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. All right, I'll All talk right. to you soon, Mark. Thanks,
0: bud. See you.
1: All right. That was a cool interview with Mark Games from 2010, talking about how creepy, how creepy rich people are and vampiric. So we heard from both hosts of Radio War Nerd this morning. You can check them out on Patreon. They put on a very interesting and informative podcast. Let's read some of these questions from hell. Remember this week's question from hell is, what you got going on inside you? What you got going on inside you? Benjamin C. writes, semi-expired red velvet cake and zebra mocha from Starbucks, nasty. Borky B. writes, tapeworm. It's a good way to lose some weight. Aaron D. writes, chi back up at the fifth chakra. To which Lisa F. responds, There's your problem. Brayden S. says, None of my business. If I needed to know about it, somebody would have told me by now. All right. I'll read one more. This week's question from hell. What you got going on inside you? Fabio A. writes, Your mom. Excellent. I'll save the rest for Sebastian tomorrow. Speaking of which, tomorrow Sebastian will be playing an interview with Taylor Griffey on student debt and university financialization. And he'll have a brand new moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff introduces the other white pride, calcium. That sounds pretty good. I hope you had as much fun as I did dipping into the This Is Hell archives. Chuck has such an amazing body of work. It's a real pleasure to share it with you. I look forward to doing so again next week. So, until then...
3: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a Uh sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put
2: me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This
1: Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit
3: thisishell.com.